Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those who may not know me, my name is Michelle McKeska, and I am not the pastor of Sweetwater Christian Church. I'm one of the elders here at the church and will be preaching the message this morning. Um, I'm so happy to be with you all, and I just, I love you, I miss you, and I'm sending everybody a virtual hug. Um, if you are like me, then hopefully you are starting to feel like you are settling into this new normal. Um, and while a lot of things about the coronavirus are terrible and scary and hard, I can definitely get used to wearing pajamas all day for the rest of my life. Uh, today will mark the second day, uh, second day in 15 days that I've worn anything besides yoga pants and a sweatshirt. <clears throat> and you know what? I'm okay with that. I really am. Uh, but all jokes aside, Today is a very special day in the church calendar. It is the first day in what Christians call Holy Week. Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday today and will end with Good Friday and of course Easter. So Mike had asked me a while back uh, to preach on Palm Sunday, obviously before all of this happened. Uh, so I decided to decorate a little bit to signify the event, make it really special. Uh, and y'all, I didn't hold back. I pulled out all the stops. I have right here my car air freshener that is a palm tree. So just for you to make it special, wanted to bring some excitement to you. Hopefully if you've got your kiddos at home, they have their coloring sheets with palm branches so that your houses can be festive for the occasion as well. Uh, we'll get into why it's called Palm Sunday a little bit later. But before we get into the sermon, I wanted to share, as you can see, I've got a couple of items here, um, some ways that I am getting through this pandemic, my emotional survival tools. Uh, these I like to call are my quarantine essentials. Uh, so I just wanna explain a little bit about what these items are. The first uh, are obviously not items for me, they are my son's stacking blocks. And right now, Malachi is all about the stacking. So uh, anything in my house that he can stack or build or place together, that is making him happy right now. And for those of you who have had a toddler, you know that a happy toddler equals a happy life. It's not happy wife, happy life. No, 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 no. It's happy toddler, happy life. Toddlers rule the household, they know this, okay? So these blocks are quarantine essentials. Uh, the second item is my gardening hat. And I'm, I'm gonna put this on here so you guys can get the full effect. No jokes, please. Actually, joke away, because I can't hear you. So, there we go. This is my gardening hat. And I know, it's ridiculous. It looks absolutely ridiculous. But you know what, guys? Do you see this skin? Do you see this skin tone? Yeah. This is not the skin of someone who tans. It burn all day long. So if I want to be out in the garden, I have to wear this ridiculous hat. Okay? All right. Hopefully that gave you a laugh this morning. Um, 
So gardening has definitely become essential for me during this time of quarantine. Uh, it is a huge stress reliever. I find it so incredibly cathartic to just pull out the weeds and imagine that they are all my problems. Uh, so gardening has become my essential. The last items that have become my quarantine essentials are my books. Um, I am an avid reader, as many of you know, and there have been a couple of books that have just been lifelines to me during this time. Uh, this first one is a memoir. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about it later. This is by an author, uh, Glennon Doyle, and I'm super loving it right now. And then the second book is a sci-fi fantasy by N.K. Jemisin. She's one of my favorite sci-fi authors. Um, those who <clears throat> know me pretty well uh, know that I am uh, pretty obsessed with really intricate fantasy fiction. Uh, N.K. Jemisin's recent story talks about New York, specifically five boroughs, that come alive. They become a monster that people have to fight. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Uh, I don't know how people come up with this stuff, but I'm just happy that I get to read it, uh, especially right now. Uh, so I wanted to ask you this morning as a way for you guys to participate in the service, uh, what have become your quarantine essentials? And feel free to write in the comments below. Um, I'm not talking about toilet paper here, though that has definitely become essential. Uh, but what are the things or practices that are sustaining you in this time of social distancing? What routines are helping you cope? What spiritual practice have you clung to? Um, have you found yourself getting outside more? What have become your quarantine essentials? So uh, this pandemic has really hit all of us. Um, and we've been all feeling its effects. And it's been interesting for me to see how um, this has uh, affected everyone in my family differently. So I'm more of an introvert. Zach is more of an extrovert, uh, which means that our stresses are a little bit different but they're stresses all the same, right? Um, many of us have had to adjust to working from home, to no longer having that separated space between home and work um, with our kiddos, not understanding that, hey, I know we're here with you right now, but we're working. Um, and then on top of that, homeschooling are all of our children. <laughs> so uh, it goes without saying that this is a highly stressful time. Um, but even on top of this, the pandemic has significantly decreased our exterior world. Our worlds have gotten a whole lot smaller. Um, and there's a real loneliness that comes from not seeing our friends, our families, and our coworkers in person. Um, these are all really hard things that we are going through right now. Um, and as I mentioned before, one of the books that I'm reading is called Untamed. Uh, the author's name is Glennon Doyle. She's both an author and an activist, um, and she's also a person in recovery. So she talks a lot about sobriety um, and recovery in her work. And she recently shared, and I thought this was very profound, that our entire world right now is going through the first stages of sobriety. We are all in detox right now. Detox from busyness. Um, and we're kind of being forced into a slowness, right, that none of us signed up for. She calls it a stillness. 
And if we have families and roommates, we're being forced to detox from this busyness together. Um, and I don't know what's worse, right? If, if we're having to do this together or maybe that we're having to do this alone. We have fewer activities and calendar dates and these were really convenient. Uh, they help distract us, right? From feeling all those pesky feelings. Um, and now it's just us, no calendar dates and all our feelings. So I would like to propose something for us right now. As we are all feeling the stress, the grief, the fear, I wanna propose something difficult. I wanna propose that we lean into the feelings, that we give those feelings a voice. I think this pandemic has actually given us an opportunity. Um, it's given us time, time to feel, time to grieve, time to slow down. And something really beautiful can happen in those moments when we allow ourselves to feel. And this is something um, that I have personally discovered through therapy. But we start to really allow and give ourselves time to learn who we are and who we're meant to be. And maybe those two things are the same, but regardless, right, we're starting to have time to introspect because there's nothing to distract us. So I wanna share a specific quote from uh, Glennon's most recent book, because I think it speaks to both the specific moment that we're in and also the moment that we happen to be in in the church calendar, which is Holy Week. Um, Glennon says this about grief in her book, Untamed. She says, grief is a cocoon from which we emerge new. I'll say that again. Grief is a cocoon from which we emerge new. She goes on to talk about how pain and grief, all the uncomfortable feelings, are the things, uh, the things in life that are really hard, are so often the breeding ground for a transformation. And you know, as a Christian, I just, I totally buy that. Um, because it's part of our central story. The story we focus on during Holy Week, right? The story of resurrection, of life emerging from a tomb, this is not to make light of our grief and our pain, right? It's real, but it is to say um, that so often God's way of acting is to come and meet with us in our pain, to connect with us in our despair. I mean, as Christians, we say without irony that God's victory looks like a broken man hanging on a cross, that God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom where the people we call blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And perhaps they are blessed because grief truly is this fertile ground for transformation, for rebirth, for stripping, for removing our old ways of thinking, our old patterns of behavior. Grief, pain, all the feelings we don't wanna feel, they become our way to meet God. A God whose consistent pattern is rebirth, death and resurrection. And meeting God just so happens to be the very topic that Palm Sunday talks about. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 13. That is where we're going to be this morning, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 13. So Palm Sunday today is the first <clears throat> day of Holy Week, 
and it is a day when churches around the globe celebrate Jesus's triumphal entry. So that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Um, and the story of the triumphal entry and then what Jesus does in the temple afterwards is actually told in all four Gospels. It is a pivotal event in Jesus's ministry, much like Jesus' baptism. So Jesus' baptism, also in all four Gospels, kind of signaled the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And the triumphal entry is one of the events that's going to signal the end or the climax of Jesus' ministry. So let's dive in and see what this story has to tell us this morning. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 13, if you'll follow along with me as I read. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Okay, so there is a lot to unpack here. And in order to do that, we need to understand a little bit about the context, the history and the background of the time Jesus was living in. We need to remember that Jesus was a Jewish man speaking to the Jewish people, his people, specifically the Jews of the first century. So a couple things are happening here and a couple of scriptures are being used to say something about what Jesus is doing. So the first thing that anyone in the crowd would have understood was that Jesus' actions, getting on a donkey, riding towards Jerusalem, heading to the temple, were the actions of someone who believed they were king. Not just any king, but a king who had come to save Israel from their enemies, a conquering king like David, a Messiah. Jesus decides to ride on a donkey and he's heading to Jerusalem, right? He's heading to the temple. And the scripture that this would recall is quoted in verse five, and I will just reread it again for you. In verse five, it says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So this is a quote from Zechariah 9, 9. Um, and it was commonly seen in the Old Testament, right, as a prophecy about the Messiah. So the second clue comes from what the crowd says and does in response to Jesus's action. Uh, and this is where the palms come in. If we've still got our palms or we're coloring our palms, uh, this is why we call today Palm Sunday. 
Um, it says in the text that they laid their cloaks on the ground before him and then they cut branches and laid them out as well. Now, the reason that's significant is because you only did this in a royal procession. You only did this for a king. The crowd is showing Jesus the kind of respect reserved for royalty. The second thing that they do is they shout, Hosanna. Specifically, they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So we need to talk about what that means um, and in order to understand why they were singing Hosanna, we need to understand that Jesus has come to Jerusalem during a specific festival called Passover. So this is the festival where Israel remembers how God saved them from the Egyptians, how he freed them from slavery. It's the story of the Exodus. Uh, so right now what's going on in Jerusalem is preparation for this festival. And so this is what the Israelites have in their minds when they're singing the song, Hosanna. Uh, the songs that they're singing to Jesus are the songs that they would normally be singing about God. This is a Passover Psalm. Specifically, it's from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. And it's clear that the crowd singing this song believes that Jesus is bringing a salvation like the Exodus, a salvation from their enemies, a salvation that brings freedom. Hosanna, that very word means save us. Now, why would Israel at this point be so fiercely hoping for salvation and freedom from their enemies? Why would this seemingly tap into their imaginations and their hearts and their emotions right now? Again, we need to look at the context. We need to understand the history and background of Israel in the first century. And we see that the freedom here in this story, the freedom that Israel longs for is the freedom from Roman oppression. So at this time, Israel is not a free nation. They are occupied by the Roman Empire. And while the Israelites are not technically slaves, they are in no way free. Um, Rome conquered Israel and then appointed a king of Israel who was basically a puppet for Rome. He just did whatever Rome wanted. Rome taxed the Israelites into poverty, uh, had several campaigns of forced assimilation. They routinely forbid their festivals, their customs, and their practices. They had a history of doing this, of putting Roman gods in the temple, forcing them to eat unclean meat, sacrificing to their gods. And if anyone tried to fight back, if anyone tried to rebel against Rome, they were crucified. Crucifixion, was not just a single execution. I think we tend to think of it this way because of Jesus, right? That we imagine him on a hill just with the two thieves next to him. But it was very typical for Rome to crucify entire rebellions. They would be crucified in a public place, usually along a well-traveled road, so that Israel, as they are walking to and from the places they needed to go, would see what happens to people who fought back. Rome used the cross to teach Israel that resistance was futile. Roman crucifixion was an act of state-sponsored terrorism. It was meant to strike fear in the hearts of their subjects. So when Israel sees Jesus riding on a donkey, heading to Jerusalem, they are hoping that this is God's anointed, that this is their Messiah. This is the king who's gonna raise up the army and who's gonna save them from the oppressive Roman regime. All Jesus needs to do is go to the temple 
and make his claim known. That's it. He has the crowds, right? This is how so many messianic revolutions happened, both before and after Jesus. And they're all hoping maybe he's it. I can hear he can perform miracles, right? Like, can you imagine what he can do with an army? Why else would all these people be following him? And then Jesus goes in the temple and he doesn't make his claim. He doesn't take his seat on the throne. He doesn't launch a campaign. He flips over tables. Now, if you are confused by this series of events, you are not alone. Everyone else was too, his disciples especially. So why would Jesus deliberately invoke an act that will be interpreted as messianic, right? The triumphal entry, hands down, and then do something so completely unexpected in the temple. And I think that when we have traditionally read the story of what Jesus is doing in the temple, when he flips over the tables, I think a lot of people have imagined that story as Jesus walking into the temple and he sees all the money changers and he just, he just gets mad. Like, he loses it. He goes Rambo on the place, and he is just so incredibly frustrated at what he's seen. Um, but I think a couple of things make that interpretation problematic. One, as I've said, the Passover festival is currently going on. So you have a lot of people coming from all different places now in Jerusalem who need to exchange their currency. Right? This was a very common practice that Jesus would have been familiar with. There's not corruption here. Um, second, uh, the problem is that this assumes that Jesus was acting reactively. Uh, when this entire scene, right, getting the donkey, uh, going to Jerusalem, entering the temple, it all seems to be very intentional. Jesus is trying to say something here. The question is what? And in order to answer this question, we need only look at the other prophets who came before Jesus. And when we do that, we see that prophetic acts were commonly done in and about the temple. The reason for that is because the temple is the central place, right? The cherished symbol of both Israel's national and religious hopes. It was built by Israel's kings during a time when they were a free and thriving nation. It is the special place where God meets his people. So if you want to get somebody's attention, action in the temple is gonna do it. And Jesus, not just here, but throughout his entire ministry, has been shaking up the status quo around the temple. Many scholars have actually described Jesus' ministry as a counter-temple movement. There were other Jewish sects around this time that had criticisms of the temple and how it was run. Uh, some even started monastic communities. And Jesus and his movement share a lot of similarities with these groups. Another example would be John the Baptist, right? He starts his movement out in the Jordan River. He's baptizing. He's claiming that God is meeting and forgiving people outside the temple walls. So this is not a new idea. So Jesus, like so many of Israel's prophets before him, were experts at shaking up the status quo at waking up God's people from their religious slumber. And Jesus' action in the temple was meant to do just that. It was to be used as a symbolic act like the prophets before him, to wake us up, to get us to stop and pay attention, 
to take a hard look at our assumptions about how and where we meet God. And if we want to understand what Jesus is saying about the temple, then we need to go back to the garden. Remember in Genesis 1, a long time ago when I preached the sermon, uh, when God creates the world, what he creates, if we remember from all the imagery and symbolism that's used, God has said that what he's created is a temple. All of creation is God's sacred space. And humanity is especially so because we are filled with God's breath, God's spirit. Uh, God resides within us. So all of Jesus' actions about the temple have been trying to get us to go back to the garden, to God's original tent, intent and design. That as Jesus said to the woman at the well, that a time was coming, in fact, it's already here, when God's people will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, not on this mountain, not on that mountain, that the place where we meet God is here within us. And humans from the dawn of time have been really good at taking the sacred that God freely gives and putting limits on it. We do it over and over. And when human beings inevitably build fences or place boundaries around God's grace, God sends a prophet to knock it down, to flip some tables, to shake up the status quo. And I find it so incredibly profound that right now, at the start of Holy Week, as we are reading the passage of Jesus flipping over tables, that we are living in a time where everyone's status quo is being so fundamentally shaken. And I just think that these are the times that can truly become the breeding ground for an awakening, that these are times that force us to stop and pay attention. The, pan the pandemic right now is shining a whole lot of light on injustice. It is laying bare the inequality that has always been there. And it's forcing us to ask, who do we want to be as a person, as a society, as a church? Our tables are being flipped. We're being called to really look within, to ask some hard questions, to maybe let go of some things. So at the start of Holy Week, I think we've been offered maybe a gift. It is the gift of Jesus turning over our tables, the gift of being forced to stop and pay attention, to lean into the stillness, to let go and to meet God in the unexpected. God's salvation has always defied our expectations. Palm Sunday begins with shouts of Hosanna, of crying out for God to save us. But Jesus didn't lead a revolution against Rome. He died on a Roman cross. It's not what Israel expected. After Jesus' death, none of the disciples were expecting resurrection. No one expected that the holy place, the temple, the place where God dwells, was within us all along. I know that this Holy Week is not what any of us expected or even wanted. I want to be with my church family. I want us all to be well. I want us to be singing together in the sanctuary. 
I want to celebrate Easter with you in person. And it's painful that I can't. But maybe that, that means that this is a time where we can lean into that feeling. A time where we can share in the suffering of Jesus in a way that we've never been able to before. Because the story of Easter is the story of death and resurrection. It's not a happy, light, fluffy story. It's a story about God's Son doing something incredibly hard, full of pain and completely alone. But through that act came rebirth and transformation. And maybe, just maybe this Holy Week in a time of pandemic is going to bring us closer to the truth of Easter than any other time before. The moment we're in right now is scary. It's okay to feel that. It is right and true and good to pray for healing and a swift end or a cure to this disease because I truly believe that's God's heart and desire. But while we wait for those things, for a vaccine, for the quarantine to end, I think we can learn some lessons while we wait. This pandemic, I think, has reminded us how dependent we are and how we are so not as in control as we would like. That some problems don't have solutions. But through all this, I find myself continuing to hold on to the stubborn and persistent idea, and it's hope. Not the kind of hope that turns a blind eye to suffering, but a hope that is rooted in the pain of transformation. The hope found in Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, it's the hope of Easter. So my prayer for you today is that God would reveal himself to you, that you would meet God in the unexpected places in times of hardship, that this time of grief would be the fertile ground for growth, that our pain can become the unexpected place of transformation for life, for rebirth, for resurrection. Would you pray with me? God of resurrection, God of sorrow, we come before you broken and hurting. We pray for the swift healing of the sick, the end of this pandemic, but we know because of Easter that salvation is not always what we expect. And so we ask that you would redeem this time of sickness, that you would take the death, the grief, and the pain and bring life, blessing, and resurrection. We ask that you would transform us during this time and we, as your people, are holding on to the promise that you make all things new. Through the power of your spirit, we say together, amen.